Father, we take a moment to bow our heads to the Lord Jesus Christ who has adopted us into your family through his shed blood, broken body, burial and resurrection. God, thank you for this good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for being so gracious to give the local church um, an opportunity to celebrate this through baptism. I pray for our sisters and brother who will testify shortly, Lord, that you would just give them absolute freedom as they testify to the goodness of God revealed in the cross of Christ. And Lord, I ask that these words would call all believers here to remember and celebrate and cherish that we also have been raised in newness of life. And then, Father, for people who are outside yet Christ, still outside Christ, that the Spirit would call them to faith this morning. God, we want to be bold enough to ask that people who don't know you, by the time they walk out of this building, will have been born again and brought into your family. We love you, Lord. We want you to get the glory. Satisfy our hearts yet again with your redeeming love, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we have the joy of baptizing three people. Courtney McClellan. Yeah. Tina Lee, who's upstairs serving the kids right now. We can still clap, though. And then Steve Kuyper. Yeah. I'm here to tell you, every one of them has a powerful testimony, and they're going to be bragging on Jesus in just a few minutes. But I love how the Lord lines things up and calendars them. Because we're moving through 1 Corinthians, and we now finally arrive at 1 Corinthians 15, which if you've read through this book, you know is a a chapter that is just chock full with hope-drenched resurrection truth. And we know from Romans chapter 6 that baptism is a visual picture of how at conversion, a believer died with Christ, right? Was what else? buried with Christ, and raised in newness of life. In other words, it celebrates how we experienced a resurrection spiritually, baptism does. So there's that. But I would add to that that baptism actually anticipates the day that's coming when the Lord is actually going to raise us all from the dead physically. And by the way, that's not just believers, Non-believers themselves will also be raised from the dead. Jesus himself taught in Mark chapter 5. He said, don't marvel at this. I know you think this is outlandish. I know you think it's fantastic, but don't marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which the Son of Man will cry out, and all those that are in the tombs will come forth, they that have done good to the resurrection of life, and they who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So 1 Corinthians 15 A chapter about resurrection is a great segue into baptism this morning. Now, if you don't know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, what the Apostle Paul, the human writer God used to write this infallible book, what he was doing is he's addressing all kinds of confusion that was going down at the church of Corinth, addressing all kinds of errors and even outright heresy. Something that, sadly, I think Christians are somewhat afraid of doing today. Paul wasn't afraid of that. 
Well, not because he took great joy in correcting or confronting the church, but because he actually loved the church, right? And he wanted her health. He wanted the gospel to go forward. And the heresy that Paul is going to confront in chapter 15, we're going to see this for four weeks, is the heresy, I think, articulated most clearly in the latter part of verse 12, chapter 15, where some people were saying, there is no resurrection from the dead. They were in the church, but they were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And commentators kind of surmise, what did they mean, like, no resurrection, period? Or just kind of a spiritual resurrection based on Greek Gnostic dualism, but not a physical resurrection. We'll come back to that in coming weeks. But at any rate, they were denying the fullness of the gospel, right? And some commentators say that the Apostle Paul was saving the worst heresy for the last, the heresy that we will not rise from the dead. And so he leaves this last so they'll remember his correction, his admonition, his encouragement, and his charge. Now, I don't think you need me to tell you that Satan, he's a real entity, is a master at repackaging old lies. So even today, people deny the resurrection. There is reincarnation, which is just in Hindu religion, which basically says, depending on how you do in this life, you're going to come back as a bug or a buffalo. A cricket or a cow. You have something called annihilationism, that if you don't know Jesus, you just kind of be poofed out of existence. And yet we just read Jesus is going to summon all from the dead, right? There's soul sleep, which the Seventh-day Adventist church uh, talks about. That's not biblical. And then you kind of have this new age-ish thing that I think is just becoming more mainstream, more pop culture. You'll go to maybe a funeral, a memorial service, and somebody will say, hey, don't be upset. Your loved one is still with us. They are in, I don't know, the, the rays of the sunset and the dewdrops of the morning, which is super poetic, but totally whack. No, they're not, okay? So we come to 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter, the longest block of teaching in all of the canon of Scripture about this thing of the bodily resurrection from the dead. And I'm, listen, this is a deposit of rich, hope-drenched, faith fueling truth. It is. Amen. Yes, sir. And we're going to return to the ground zero of why we even can call God our Father. That's what Paul does as he begins. He sets up the chapter to go into the very heart of our faith. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, where the apostle Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now, maybe you're like me. Up until I was 26, when I heard gospel, I thought of music. I thought all kinds of things. What, what is the gospel? Well, the word literally means good news. This is, the heart, this is the heart of our faith, right, as Christians. This is the ground zero of what it means to be a Christian, the gospel. But you might say, well, what is the gospel? That's a great question. And if you like to mark up your Bible, circle gospel and draw an arrow down to verses 3 and 4. Because I think verses 3 and 4 clearly define what the gospel is. These are the marquee verses, if you will, of what the gospel is in all of Scripture. Let me read them. For I delivered unto you as of what importance, by the way? First. Like, this is, this is, a, this is a ride or die issue right here. This is a make or break issue. This is what makes somebody a Christian or not, makes something a church, a real church or not a real church. For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died 
for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Now, by, by the way, if you, if, you, if you want to know how to explain the gospel, memorize these verses. That, that would be a good thing to do. Hey, what's the, so, you know, maybe a coworker, somebody at the lunch table says, you're a Christian, what do you guys believe? Well, we believe in the gospel. It's this, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day in accordance to the scripture. Now, I, I want to get to something bigger in just a second. Well, this is actually really big, but, but the, the, the big idea of this message is proofs of Christ's resurrection, okay? Verses 15, verses 1 through 11, chapter 15, the big idea is going to be the proofs of Christ's resurrection. But Paul, um, he begins, let, let me back up a little bit. Um, this chapter 15 is actually mostly about our coming resurrection, Okay? You're going to see this next week and the week after and the week after. It's mostly about our resurrection, but Paul begins with Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection is the basis for our coming resurrection. In other words, if Jesus never got out of the grave, we ain't getting out of the grave. That's what we see in the next, in the next paragraph where Paul says, if Jesus is not raised, your faith is empty. It's an empty bucket with nothing in it. And there's no content to it. You're still dead in your sins, okay? You're a sucker, you're to be pitied, he says. But Christ is dead, raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And as I say, he then goes to verse 1 when he, he lays the groundwork for what he's going to teach in the gospel. He defines it in verses 3 and 4, which I just read. And I just, again, on the way to the big idea of the proofs of Christ's resurrection, uh, th these opening verses remind us of a few significant things about this gospel. I just want to take a few minutes before I get to the main point for anybody here who this might be new to. You say, what is the gospel? It's the truth that Jesus came, died, buried, and rose again. So the gospel is, first of all, Christological, which is a fancy way of saying it's just all about Jesus. Did you read right there? It says Christ. The good news is not about us. It's about Jesus. And you say, who's Jesus? Jesus is not a religious figure on par with Buddha or Joseph Smith in the religious pantheon of gods and goddesses and religions in the world. No, Jesus is no JV God. He's got a varsity letter. Jesus is very God of very God in human flesh. He's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And remember Pastor Billy last week, he talked about how we can share the gospel. Point was, one was God became one of us. He's still God, right? But he became one of us. So the gospel is Christological, number one. It's about Christ. Number two, the gospel is historical. What does it say Christ did? Christ did what? He died. In other words, this is root. Our faith is rooted in human history. This ain't superstition. This ain't good wishes. This ain't mythology. This ain't Aesop's fables. It's, it's not opinion. It actually happened. <laughs> it happened on a real hill that's still there called Golgotha or Calvary, outside of a real city called Jerusalem, which is still there. A real man, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, was really executed on a real wooden cross where he shed his real blood, had his real flesh torn, and he did so before a jeering crowd of real people. This is so attested 
by eyewitness accounts in history that even ancient secular historians verify, yes, there was a Jesus of Nazareth who in time and space 2,000 years ago was crucified in Jerusalem. So the gospel is Christological. It's about Jesus. It's historical. It actually happened. But you can agree with those facts and still not be reconciled or right with God. Because third of all, the gospel is doctrinal. It says, Christ died. Now read on. What is it going to say? For our sins. Now this might be some, I don't know, abrupt truth or harsh truth, but truth is truth, right? And we have to understand truth so that we can receive the truth of Christ. God is holy. We're not. Do I need to prove that to you? We're actually sinful. Sins aren't just what you do. They're also what you think. And they're also the motivations behind what you do or don't do. It's a pretty wide drawer right there. What's more, God is righteous. And we are not righteous. And because he is righteous, listen, a righteous judge has to do the right thing, right, and uphold rightness and deal with wrongness. Otherwise, we'd throw that judge off the bench if we could. God deals with the problem of our unrighteousness or our sinful face of his righteousness and holiness by having his son, Jesus Christ, pay the penalty for the sins of all who would believe when he died on the cross. So how did Jesus do that? He took your sin on himself. The Bible says God made him who knew no sin because Jesus was sinless to become sin for us. So Jesus took our sin upon him. Are you with me? And then he suffered the righteous wrath of God in our place. And he declared this beautiful declaration in one of his last sayings on the cross when he said, to tell us die, which means it is finished or paid in full. So the gospel is Christological. It's about Jesus. It's historical. It really happened. It's doctrinal. He died for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. And finally, it is personal. In other words, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, as Ryan has, as Tina has, as Steve has. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you come and say, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness. Lord, I want to know you. I want to live for your glory. When that happens, the Bible says you have been saved from the penalty of sin, hell. That's called justification. You are being saved from the power and practice of sin. That's called sanctification. And some days I really long for this. One day we're going to be saved from the very possibility of presence of sin. That's called glorification. Hallelujah, amen for that. And that's why he says in verse 2, by which you are being saved. But the question is, how can you really know that Jesus saves? I mean, how can you really know when he said to Telestai paid in full that the check cleared? That's a good question, right? I think if Paul, the writer of this epistle, was here and you said, hey, Jesus, hey, hey, Paul, how do you know this stuff about Jesus is true? He'd say, thank you for asking. I got an answer for you. That's a great question. He would say, listen on, how that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, 
I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with scripture. He would say because he came back from the dead. But what would uh, an honest follow-up question would be? I mean, maybe you're here and you say, how do I really know that that's true? Anybody doubt that? You're not a bad person if you do, right? Like, if you're not a Christian, God is not asking you to take a leap in the dark, okay? So it is a very good question to say, okay, you're saying, Paul, Jesus rose from the dead, but how do I even know that's true? That's the big idea Paul is going to answer. There are three compelling proofs of Christ's resurrection. Proof number one is scripture. As I've read this text already a few times, it says that he was, he died in accordance with what? And scripture, by the way, would be this book, the Bible, all 66 books. It says that he was buried and that what else? He was raised in accordance with what? Scripture. In other words, the Old Testament books, 39 of them, which predate the birth of Christ, the coming of God in human form, told about how he would be crucified before he ever showed up in time and space. For instance, Psalm 22 tells us, this is, this is really remarkable, 700 years before Christ. Actually, before the, listen, it says that Jesus would be pierced. It says in Psalm 22 that the Messiah would be pierced. What's remarkable about, remarkable about that is not only was that written before he was crucified 700 years, but it was actually written before the sick, barbaric practice of Roman execution by crucifixion was even invented. He said he'd be pierced. How about that, right? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song, you ought to check it out, says that Jesus would be, here it is again, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that he would be killed for us. And I could go on and on. I could say how Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, if you know that story, is a, is a, is a picture of what the father would, would have to do to the son on the cross, right? I go to the Garden of Eden where that which was innocent died for that which was guilty, the shedding of blood, the covering of Adam and Eve, the animal skins, the sacrifice. I could go on and on. In fact, Jesus did go on and on. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared on the road to Emmaus. Do you all remember that? Let me read a few of those verses. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 tells us that Jesus, this is the commentary of, uh, of Luke. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, this is the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, this book, the things concerning himself. And then Luke records a lot that they talked about. And he ends that narrative in Luke chapter 24 by saying, then he opened their minds to understand, here it is, the scriptures. And now he's quoting Jesus when he said to them, thus it is written, written where? In the scriptures that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Somebody says, well, what about where it says he would be raised on the third day in accordance with scripture? Is there anything in the Old Testament about that? Actually, more than you would think. For example, in Isaiah, I just quoted Isaiah 53. Remember where it said that Jesus would be pierced for our transgressions, right? 
crushed for our iniquities. He'll be killed. But then it says in verse 10, B, that he shall prolong his days. How does that work? You're dead. He's going to prolong his days. It's talking about the resurrection, right? Maybe Jesus, as he does in the Gospels, went to Jonah and said, listen, just as Jonah is going to be in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man, referring to himself, be in the belly of the earth or in the tomb or in the grave three days and three nights. You go on and on. You can go, here's one I just discovered. I've been a Christian since 96. I did not know this, 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 this verse was here. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, Israel tells God when they're in rebellion and they're trying to get back to him, hey, God, you said, quote, on the third day you will raise us up that we may live before you. And then perhaps the most notable prophecy of the resurrection in the Old Testament is Psalm 16, verse 10. Anybody remember that verse? Where, the prof, where, where, where David said, you will not, Speaking prophetically, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which simply can mean the ground, or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, you're not going to let the Messiah's body stay in the ground long enough to where it would rot, because that's what dead bodies do, right? And then what's remarkable, now going to the New Testament, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. And then he says, let all the house of Israel assuredly know that you have made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And you know what the response of the people was? It says, now they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do to be saved? And he gives them the gospel, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just wonder, are you cut to the heart at all by the fact is, you killed Jesus. Well, he died for our sins. Therefore, in a way, we killed him. But he did that on a mercy mission so that he would take the punishment you deserve and rise again so that you might be freely offered forgiveness. I wonder if anybody here, there's something in your heart right now that says, I want to turn to Jesus. I want to turn to Jesus. He, listen, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised her from the dead, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Awesome. He offers this to you. But proof number one is this. The scriptures attest to the fact that Jesus Christ would be crucified and raised long before it ever actually happened. Somebody says, oh, come on, man. You Come on. You know these things were written after the fact. People say that all the time. And it's not true. No, I invite you to go visit Mr. Google. He does lie a lot, Mr. Google. But if you Google Dead Sea Scrolls or Qumran Scrolls, you will find that there are copies of the Old Testament that predate the birth of Jesus by at least a couple of hundred years. So you can't say these detailed prophecies were written after the fact when we have hard evidence that's just not the case. Now let's move to proof number two. There were eyewitnesses. What's proof number one? Scripture. Proof number two, eyewitnesses. In verses 5 through 10, Paul moves on to a long list of witnesses. Now, let me, let me set up this, this, this point with this. In reality, the resurrection is one of the most attested facts in all of human history. I know that's a bold claim, but I think I can support it. Even ancient secular historians said that Christians were saying Jesus rose from the dead 
and they believed they had evidence for it. But then people flip the script, and this is what they do. They, they do this in college classes, in religious classes. They will say stuff like this. They will say, hey, the crucifixion is fact. The resurrection is opinion. Or they'll say, cast it this way. The crucifixion is history, but the resurrection is religion. And I just want to tell you, that's totally bogus. That, 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 is, that is a false duality right there. You can't make that. You can't make that bifurcation. We have access to the same historical event of the resurrection that we do to any other historical event we have access to. You say, well, how do we have access to those old historical events? Eyewitness accounts. And that's what he's going to lay forth, eyewitness accounts. You ever notice that every year, Time Magazine, Newsweek, some magazine just republishes some old rag that says, did Jesus really rise from the dead, right? And really what they're trying to do is either debunk the reality, Jesus rose from the dead, or they're trying to at least cast doubt on it. But invariably, if you read all the articles, it boils down to this argument they make. Well, how can we really believe these eyewitness accounts because we're in, it, they're all in the Bible, or most of them are in the Bible, and we know the Bible, you know, that's biased. And that's so foolish. Like if, like if all these eyewitness accounts were in a book besides the Bible, it would be magically or mysteriously more authoritative? Huh? See, that's not the product of genuine scholarship. That's the product of deceitful demonship. So let's just for a second put aside the fact that this book is inspired. One of the proofs is fulfilled prophecy. Let's just put that aside, okay? This is a historical document, the Bible is. You know that? And this historical document has more manuscripts or more copies than any other ancient historical document bar none in history. I mean, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of copies through the ages. One copyist to another copyist. You know when you play the tell the story in the classroom thing, how much the story changes, right? But actually, there's very few differences in the copies. No significant doctrinal differences at all. So let's look at this historical document and the list, the partial list of eyewitnesses he gives. It's a partial list because Jesus actually appeared at least 12 times in 37 days between the resurrection and the ascension. But here's a few of them. First of all, verse 5, Paul says he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter. Who's Peter? Peter is this guy who denied Jesus to a peasant girl. Jesus is upside, up, upstairs in, uh, in that hall testifying that he is the Son of God. And down below, Peter denied him. And that spun Peter down into a massive depression. He probably had clinical depression after he denied his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So my question is, what turned this sturdy fisherman who became a crumbling coward into a man who would die a martyr for the faith all the way to the end, who was not only crucified, but crucified upside down, tradition says, because he said he was not worthy to die as his master did. What, what triggered that change in him? Answer, he saw Jesus alive. And you can read about that in the Gospels. The next eyewitness he calls to the stand is a really big stand because, and actually that's the third one. The next one is that he's Peer to Cephas and then to the 12, okay, then to the 12, which would become, you know, 11 because Judas kind of did his thing. 
Now, every one of these other 11 apostles, what happened when Jesus was crucified? Did they say, well, the prophecies are in the Old Testament, and they set their stopwatch and say, we'll come back in three days and have a party? No, they scattered, right? And yet every one of them, though they had scattered in cowardice, <laughs> bravely testified to the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen to their final breath. What caused that? As a matter of fact, as they try to find a replacement apostle for Judas, Matthias was his name, Acts chapter 1, verse 22 said, in order for, the, for another guy to become apostle, he had to be, this was a non-negotiable criteria, he had to be a witness of the resurrection. So there you have it again. You got Cephas, you got the 12. Then it says he appeared to more than 500 people at once, some who've fallen asleep, but most are still alive, he says. Now think about that. 500 people at once. You know what people try and say? They all experience the same uh, hallucination. You ever heard that? Ever read that? Which is just crazy. Are they all in the same router? Like how do they all, half a thousand, get the same hallucination? It doesn't really work that way. And he says, you can go track them down. In other words, they're still alive. You could talk to them yourself when they can prove it. And what's really interesting is, not only could you look them up, ask them these living eyewitnesses when he wrote this, is this because 1 Corinthians was actually written before the Gospels, they were bearing verbal testimony to the fact that Jesus was alive before it was actually written down in the Gospels. Now let's go to the next witness he calls to the stand. James, he appeared to James. This may be the greatest proof of Christianity, or the greatest proof of, of, of the resurrection. And we're, not talking about, we're not talking about the, the, the two, other two James. We're talking about James, Jesus' brother here, likely, his half-brother, right? Now, do you remember when Jesus was born? The Bible says immediately his family recognized, this is the Son of God. We'll worship him right now. Is that what happened? No, Mark chapter 3 says that he's, he's going loco. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. And most of us would think that, right? In fact, they tried to tuck him away. They tried to sequester him away. They tried to hide him. And when he wouldn't have that, in Luke chapter 7, they're actually mocking their own brother. Not that brothers ever do that. And yet James will die a martyr for the faith. Why? because he came to believe that Jesus was alive. Why? Because he actually saw him with his own two eyes. And then he says in verse 7, to all the apostles. He appeared to, to, to all the apostles. And again, I just remind you, they were faithful to their last breath. How many people would die like that for a lie and die brutal deaths for a lie? They did. But Paul is going to call one more witness to the witness stand, one more eyewitness. And it's going to be very personal because Paul himself is going to step to the eyewitness stand. He's calling his own eyewitness to account. He says in verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to who? To me. I don't have time to unpack this, but basically what happened? He was born in a, he became a Christian and he became an apostle in a different way than the other apostles did. He's actually, this guy, check this out. This guy, if you don't know anything about the Bible story and what happened uh, with the early Christians is he was actually on the way to kill other Christians. 
He wasn't like a pro-Christian person. He was going to kill Christians. He's on the road to, uh, I think it's Damascus, right? And it, and it says in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, what happened? The risen Christ stopped him dead in his tracks and made him alive. And then commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And even Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Well, what's, what's really cool is, is, listen, Paul stood to gain nothing by fabricating a lie. He didn't have a book deal waiting for him. He didn't have a $400 million contract waiting for him. He stood to gain nothing and lose everything. He had a lot of stature as a Jewish man, as a Jewish rabbi. But the reason he preached it is because it actually happened and he ended up losing everything. I love in verse 10 how we emphasize this, that he was made what he is by the grace of God. And because of the grace of God, he worked his butt off. This is the message of the gospel, grace, undeserved favor. But I, just, I want to try and summarize so we can get to baptism. I want to ask you this with the case of the Apostle Paul standing up here on the witness stand. What caused the greatest persecutor of the church to become the greatest preacher of the gospel. What was it? What was it? Just say it. He saw him alive, right? He literally saw him alive, turned a terrorist into a lover of God and people. That's what happened. Now finally, and this will be much quicker than the last two points, proof number three. Proof number three is you and you and you and you. It's every believer here. Look what he says in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you, I, you know what? I, I'm all over the place this morning. I'm so hopped up on cold medicine, so that, I think that's the reason. But I, I, I got to close out my, my second point by simply this. Do you know how hard it is to pull off a widespread fabrication? You know how hard it is? Like, take the fake hate crime with Jesse, Jesse Smollett, right? Did I miss the name right? Smollett, thank you. You had three people in on that, right? Just three. Not 500, not 1,000. You had three. So a lot easier to, to keep a lie moving forward, right? And what happened? It just took a few investigators for the whole hoax to unravel. You had, I don't know how many... The, Exactly, but well over 500, maybe much, much more witnesses to the resurrection, right? How are they all going to fabricate the same lie? What's more, it has been investigated century after century after century after century after century by various Christians. There are people, there have been scientists and lawyers and, and such like that who sought to disprove the resurrection, and in seeking to disprove the resurrection, they had a Damascus Road experience and they became born again because the evidence was so overwhelming and the Spirit of God worked. The only way people get around the resurrection is not by supplying evidence that would show it's a lie, but by proposing wild, unsubstantiated theories in the face of all the evidence. You know, he, he hallucinated. They hallucinated. It's the swoon theory. They stole his body. And I just want to say, Christianity never asks you to believe a lie. There is more evidence to the resurrection than most uncontested historical events, and that's just flat truth. Now, you. The reason Christianity 
has continued to reproduce everywhere is not because of the charisma or the power of messengers who lose their place in a simple sermon like I just did. Thank you. You're so encouraging. Our faith, like, he's very, thank you, brother. The reason the gospel reproduces is not because of the power of the messengers, but because of the power of the message itself. I think that's the sense of verse 3 when he says, whether then it was I or they, in other words, it was immaterial who preached it, right? I, they, I'm not, I don't even know who preached you, but somebody did. And the result was, so we preach and so you believed. Every time a person, through the witness of the word and the witness of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes, every time somebody does the Romans 10, 9 thing, they confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they are saved. Every time that happens, further proof is given to the resurrection. Especially when it's a real confession, because there's some fake ones out there, right? And when that confession is accompanied by a changed life and an ever-increasing changed life, as it was with Paul. How many people through the ages, even in this church, came to believe in Jesus because they saw the difference Jesus made in a friend of theirs? The joy that they had, the new direction in their life, all of that. And the living Christ then was bearing testimony through that believer. That's why you and I are testimonies to the power of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. How is your life right now testifying to the fact that Jesus is alive? And Paul ends, and I go back to the top two verses with this. We need this. Paul was well aware that there were people there who did not have real saving faith. Any pastor is well aware that there are people in the church who even who've been through a membership process of sorts who may not have real saving faith. He'll write in 2 Corinthians 13, chapter 5, examine yourselves whether you be of the faith. There is a difference between fake faith and real faith. Fake faith is what it means to believe in vain, as he talks about in these verses. That is empty faith. Now, today, people talk a lot about this idea of deconstruction. Have you ever heard that expression? Sure you have. People deconstructing. I just got to tell you, that is, that's nothing new, okay? Now, you know more about it because, you know, social media, everything's ubiquitous. You, know, you just know a lot more information about anything today, right? And so you would get the idea that everybody's deconstructing. That's not the truth, but people have always been deconstructing. Only the Bible doesn't call it deconstruction. Just honest with us. It calls it apostasy. It calls us departing from the faith. It calls us falling away. I think the word deconstruction is a way to try and dignify the reality that someone is turning their back on Jesus. The Bible warns about this. And there's two ways that people apostatize. Sometimes they change the gospel. They depart theologically. It doesn't really matter if Jesus was raised from the dead. What, what matters is that his memory lives on. That's heresy, Right? And sometimes people depart personally. Well, I want to live life the way I want to live it. In other words, you don't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul uses four words to these Christians to get them to make sure that they're looking to Christ. 
He re, he, it's the word remind. Now, I would remind you. We need to be reminded of the gospel. That's what we're doing. He says, which I preached to you, which you received. There's a second word, remind. You receive the gospel. Keep receiving it. Don't forsake it. Receive it more by which you're standing. Keep standing on this truth. If you hold fast, keep holding it fast. See, somebody with fake faith hears those words and they just blow it off. Oh, I prayed that prayer. But somebody with real faith says, oh, Lord, help me to really walk with you, right? It keeps them on alert. And, and, and these words and the Spirit, in the end, keep us. In the end, rest assured, it's not us keeping us. It's God keeping us. But do you know who you, God uses to keep us? Who does he use to keep us? He actually, you don't keep yourself, but he uses the body of Christ to remind you of the promises of God. So I'm going to ask the music team to come, but I, I want to give you some of these warnings, okay? In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer writes, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. Now, how do those words land on you? Here's something that needs to be said in this era. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we have that role with each other. We have that role. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear three testimonies that hope will remind us to keep receiving the gospel, to keep standing on the gospel, and to keep holding fast to the gospel, knowing that in the end, it ain't us holding on to the gospel. It's the Christ of the gospel holding on to us. Amen. Because Philippians 1.6 says, we can be confident of this very good thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God.